You're listening to Liz Taylor of Monash University and of This Must Be The Place podcast. The material you're about to hear was put together as part of the Amplify project. Amplify Story Resistance Radio is a part live pirate radio performance and part sound exhibition based out of Sydney. Amplify is about the importance of speaking out and the importance of listening in urban politics. Okay, you're listening to Liz Taylor, a senior lecturer in urban planning and design at Monash University, and I'm joined today by two of the authors of the book Music City Melbourne. What's this full subtitle? I'll get to that. Um, We have Shane Homan, who is the head of the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University, and Seamus O'Hanlon, Associate Professor in History at Monash University. How are you going, guys? Good, thanks. Thanks for having us. What's the full title of the book, Music City Melbourne. Urban culture, history, and policy. Right. And what was the emphasis for this project? I know it came out of a, a research project looking at Melbourne as a music city, but what's the scope and when did you start and who did you talk to? What's covered in this book? Uh, we started in 2014. The premise of the Australian Research Council grant was that there'd been a lot of literature, a lot of academic literature, which basically said add water and pour a kind of Lego building block mechanism for what a music city should look like. Music city is now a very popular term in the corridors of governments, in the corridors of industry across the globe. And we thought that the music city concept is a bit more complex than make sure you have enough live music venues in your city, add a bit of funding and stir. We thought um, each city is a bit more complex than that. Each city has its own context and histories and urban histories and policy contexts and settings, and also it's, it's its own national settings which which bleed into city contexts, which need to be unpacked more than simply applying what seems to be a global template across a range of very complex city histories. So a lot of cities now, governments, look to the term music city for a kind of branding. Is that true? When did this term come about? Um, I think, well, pretty much at the start of this century, it has its it has um, has its pretext, if you like, in terms of concepts like the literature city, the film city, or the cinema city. So, it comes out of UK and US literature, dating back to the nineteen seventies, and of course by the eighties in the UK, especially the term creative city became very popular in terms of what governments can do for industries, what industries can do for governments. So, the music industry, sorry, the music city concept comes out of those earlier discussions. Um, but it's taken off in a way which those other kind of concepts have not, I don't think. Right. So Melbourne, is it a music city and was it a music city in – so your study starts really neatly with the arrival of rock and roll in 1956, is that right? Yep. Is that a precise moment, like 2 o'clock on, you know, 13th of March, 1956, rock and roll, or is it sort of just – It's kind of the same time as television. Television yeah, starts okay. in 56, and so that's also the Olympic year. Of course, yeah. This is yeah. sort of transformative year. Yeah. So was, what did, that's one of the things your book covers is this history starting from rock and roll. So we're covering sort of 70 years of popular music. Um, you might want to define popular music, but that, obviously that's changed over the decades. But what did Melbourne kind of brand itself as in the 1950s at the start of your study? Well, one of the reasons why I got involved in this and Shane approached me to be involved, I've been working for a number of years on deindustrialization and the post-industrial city. And one of the reasons music cities as an idea becomes important is because the, eco- the economy that was based on manufacturing, which was the 1950s, basically collapsed in the 1970s around the world. And so governments were looking for a new economic strength and culture in its multiple forms became part of that and music was recognised as sort of especially popular culture and youth culture became a really important driver of economics of urban economics so governments as i say around the world looked at places that were successful in musically and realised that not only did they have a sort of a thriving nightlife but they're actually attractive to tourists yeah, well, that's right. The visitor economy, and I yeah. think the the Olympics kind of is was a what's the word lightning rod for those anxieties. Well, yeah. kind of remaking the city for yeah. visitors, as but well. much more so. That it was factories. You know, the factories basically closed down in rapid succession in the seventies. And one of the things we looked at in the book is um, documentaries that governments would make over various 
times. And in the 50s and the 60s, it's all about working in the factory, come to Australia, come to Melbourne, get a job, work at Holden's, work or Ford or something like that, and the good life. Yeah. Well, by the 1980s, they were gone. And it was more of a consumption kind of idea. Yeah. yeah. Come and have fun. Yeah. And yeah. listen to people singing about how they used to have a job. Yeah. <laughs> Can we get a picture, though, in the in the 1950s and 60s and, and all the decades covered? Lots of things change. Obviously, the economy changes, the demography of Australia changes, migration profiles, the, the sort of sheer size of youth culture, I guess. But amongst that is a sort of physical change in um, venues as well. Where would you go to listen to music, live music, in the 50s versus the 1990s? So, I mean, you summarise it as sort of town hall to stadium to pub. Yeah, well, I think Melbourne was similar to Sydney and Brisbane where the first places where people like Johnny O'Keefe, Johnny Devlin, um, those types across the country found their venues was the town hall circuit. It was very, very um, good circuit in terms of accommodate a lot of people. They did their own catering, charged at the door. Because at that time, to be honest, uh, hotels did not did not want rock and roll. Um, we found great newspaper articles where ho- hotel owners were saying, we actively try to keep youth, long-haired youth, out of our pubs. We don't want them in our pubs. We're offering cabaret. We're offering floor shows. So it took, it took until the... I would say it took until the late 60s, early 70s for the hotels to actually get across what rock and roll could do for them financially. Um, and up to that point, a whole demographic was lost to them. But what we found interesting in the 60s is that Seamus just spoke about the multicultural waves that landed on Melbourne shores. So we interviewed some musicians who of Italian background who came to Melbourne in the late 50s. By the mid-60s, they've created their own Italian ballroom circuit. So it's very inventive to use the ballroom, ballroom started across Melbourne suburbia. And again, DIY. So do it yourself. We'll fund them ourselves. And they were getting two or 3,000 people at a, per night at the ballrooms, um, playing mixtures of, they might do covers of Cliff Richard or of Elvis, kind of Italianized versions. But they would also do hits off, straight off the Italian hit parade for local consumption. Um, and that's, that's lost amongst, because, because rock history is so pub centered, Mm. that's quite an interesting period where that culture was very dominant from the mid sixties through to like 72, 73 when it died. But, um, we interviewed Italian musicians who learnt, learnt how to play rock and roll and saying, you know, they're making 400 pounds a week where the average, the average wage was maybe 18 pounds a week. And they were playing sort of four or five hours a night, like it was a full-time gig, full working thing. So there's a kind of question there about um, narratives and memory as well. Like the music city is partly crafted, not entirely, maybe you can correct me, but partly crafted on memory and kind of how culture is curated. So, And what, the people what, that um, own those memories are very territorial mm. about them. Can I just jump in for what some of the mm. stuff Shane was saying? And it relates back to your point about 1956 being important. One of the really interesting things about music is it's um, very good at taking over redundant spaces and the start-up costs can be quite low for that. So so 1956 is also television, which means you have a whole lot of suburban theatres become quite redundant. Those dance halls that Shane's talking about, again, they, they dotted the suburbs, but when people start staying home, and watching television, and or moving out to the suburbs. Again, they're redundant. Music moves in there and takes over them and, and adapts them. The same happens then in the 70s with the pubs. People don't go out for meals anymore to pubs. So you've got these big venues with big dining rooms. Again, music walks in there. And mm-hmm. later on, the same starts to happen with warehouses and factories and, and all that sort of stuff here. So... Yeah, so it's the spatial sort of, elements really important here. It's not usually the music industry or the music economy doesn't normally build its own venues. Or I guess maybe it has in the past, but most of your story is kind of there's a kind of changing of the guard mm. and, and the descriptions of pubs in the eighties that became kind of part of the little band scene as well. It's like there's the old guys in the pub sort of slowly being edged out. Yeah. And upstairs there's a dining room. <laughs> <clears throat> the same is true at Festival Hall. It's yes. the old boxing. Ring. Again, that sort of declines. 
rock and roll moves in. Mm, so you need that kind of relationship to space and change. Um, what what were the kind of factors that created the mega pub rock venues of the what? Well, the peak era was the seventies and eighties. There's a whole circuit of suburban beer barn pubs. Yes, I mean it's interesting that Melbourne commissioned the Premier of Victoria commissioned um, an inquiry into the licensing system of the entire state. Um, that report came out in eighty six. Um, so he got rid of something like. Um, 80 or 90 different categories of liquor license, distilled them into 12. Um, but funnily enough, um, the author of that um, inquiry hated hated the large rock pub. Yeah, he said it was sort of anti, against the kind of culture he was trying to support. Yeah, so he was seeking, he'd come from London, um, John Neuenhausen, and he, he, he wanted the more refined, um, cabaret or wine bar setting where you had a meal, um, very urbane, you know, sophisticated, have some wines, then go home. So he hated kind of the cattle barn kind of mentality of, of the large auditoriums in the rock pubs. Um, but that also came hand in hand with the battle over um, not just the licensing categories, but also uh, noise. Mm. So um, noise hadn't really become a problem until until the early 80s, where you have the bands performing, say, from 10 o'clock till midnight or 1 a.m. But also what's interesting and overlooked in this history in terms of licensing is um, you've got before the pub rock era, in the 70s, you've got people taking advantage of just a general membership license. Mm. So they they kind of crudely adopted licenses which were meant for sporting clubs and the like and saying, yep, you can, you can be a member – and we'll turn it into a, a nightclub, so we'll have kind of a disco um, atmosphere. If you join the club, then that gets us around. Um, the licensing laws would say, you know, you can't operate until say three a.m. Mm-hmm. But with a membership of a of a, a membership based license, you can you can operate to three a.m. So that sparked a whole wave in the late seventies of smaller nightclubs like Razor um, Hardware which kind of prefigured the pub circuit to some extent. Mm, yeah, so people being creative in those categories. And that earlier period also I was interested to read about how many kind of nightclubs or discotheques, they called them, were were unlicensed and yeah. not necessarily sort of pretending to serve alcohol either. They were just kind of like, what, cafes sort of dressed up. It's hard to categorise them. I guess yeah. that was a problem yeah. at the time too. Many of them, what you had to also had to do was provide a meal. Yeah. And so that was often more licensed ones, but you'd turn up there and my, I remember this, you'd turn, and you'd be given this piece of chicken that was just inedible. You'd put it in your hand and put it on the table mm-hmm. and then it'd be moved back and it'd just keep doing, <laughs> doing, doing the circuits. But, but yeah, those, um, the unlicensed discos were really important and they went all night. They went till 7am. In a way, they're sort of operating outside of the liquor system, Yeah, created other options. And my... Understanding, I think the actual drinking age was higher then as well. It was 21. Yeah. It ch- changed in the early 70s. Yeah, so that sort of fed into, I mean, now there seems to be, I mean, maybe it's changing, but generally there's a kind of um, a marrying of, if you're talking about live music in Melbourne, in Sydney I'd say as well, you're talking about alcohol and live music licensed, but that kind of intermingling hasn't always been the case. It's sort of, some of them, as you say, kind of circumvent the laws and some of them just uh, particularly at a time when y- young people weren't really associated with pubs because the drinking age was 21, they closed at 6 o'clock, mm. they were using other kinds of spaces for music. Which is not to say they weren't loading up beforehand. Yeah. But <laughs> or putting it in a drum kit, I saw the band yeah. <laughs> was doing yeah. that. Yeah. And there was, you know, if people like Ross Wilson um, speak fondly of um, and members of Spectrum and those kinds of bands speak fondly of those, that discotheque circuit at one point, according to a Four Corners we watched um, from 1966, said there was something like, you know, 25 discotheques just in the in the CBD. So they'll, they're fondly remembered for, um, so you would have a bit of recorded music, you would have a DJ on site, but then you would have a live band doing a 30-minute set. So bands would actually maybe do four or five discotheques in one night, mm. packing up doing half an hour, going straight to the next one. Um, so it became quite a 
lucrative circuit. And some of the owners of the discotheques we interviewed said the police, the police didn't like them, even the premier didn't like them. They could be, they could not close them down because they were unlicensed. Mm. So there was a constant there was a constant search for what can we do these venues on, and they just kept coming up empty. Um, yeah. And and my favourite story is Graham Geddes. I love that one. Who yeah. <laughs> who ran the catcher, mm-hmm. set up the catcher um, with one of his friends um, in Flinders Lane, and he was a headmaster of a of a high school at the time. And once he started getting some 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 adverse press, particularly the Melbourne Truth newspaper went after him in a big way. Um, he was told by the education department. You've got a choice. You can either be a venue owner or a high school principal, but you can't be both. And he chose venue owner? Uh, yes, he resigned. He resigned from the education department and kept running the catcher into the early 70s. But that, that was a kind of notorious place in terms of it had band downstairs. It had kind of um, sofas and drinking upstairs. But yes, he's, he was one of those colourful characters who saw early on what, how much money you could make. And in one of those bands, sorry, one of those venues where bands loved saying, you know, we, we, we play there till 2 a.m. and be quite experimental and just have jams, invite other bands over. Mm. So it became one of those experimental places which wasn't just like the more upmarket um, places like Sebastian's in the city. Yeah, there seemed to be a divide between these and sort of between covers, originals, um, the kinds of people that went there as well. and. Part of that seemed to be a bit about who's running the venue as well, what kind of... So there seemed to be a role of entrepreneurial, um, like Graham Geddes, um, in kind of crafting a space for, for certain kind of music as well. Yeah, but there's not to say the, the uh, musicians weren't doing both as well. Yeah. You know, you might be playing one type of music in one place and something else in another, and then you'd be swapping over bands and stuff. So it was a very lively scene. The important point about that is, which we, we kind of know through popular sort of memory... But there was just a lot of young people. Yeah, the demographic yeah. sort of profiles. The baby boomers were, re- I mean, this, the whole idea about the baby boomers is mostly myth, but there's actually a lot of them and they have money. They're, they're really the first generation of young people that have spare cash and they spend it. These places open up to cater for and then there becomes sort of like an ecosystem around clothes and eating out and you know, any number of things that someone's got money, someone wants to part you from it. And these were very, as you say, a lot of entrepreneurs jumped into that. And they were often very young entrepreneurs themselves too. Yeah, yeah, and they're getting involved in, I mean, we all know Michael Gdinsky as a sort of famous example. He started off in music press, is that right? Or, or we started a venue, I'm trying to remember, record label. They seem to Yeah, he started, all started as things. a promoter. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, of, of some suburban dancers. And then becomes like central to the ecosystem of almost going into mainstream music or very much going into. I guess on the, on the kind of discotheque um, looking for ways to shut things down, moral panics have been a, a feature of aspects of live music. So the disco scene, it was kind of like youth culture gone mad. Were there other examples in Melbourne's history of panics and trying to shut down music for different reasons? Well, the mods and the sharpies was the big one in the 60s. What's a uh, mod and what's a sharpie for the audience? Well, a mod was a modern. He's uh, now old. <laughs> <laughs> they were into, uh, it comes out of England, but yeah. it's sort of into Italian clothes and Vespers and that sort of stuff. And their opponents in England were the rockers who were more 50s greasers and things. But here, the sharpies were this very odd group here. They're a, a Melbourne thing where they had, you know, they had mullets essentially. That was Is this their, the... Their, Origin story of the bogan as a sharpie or not? Yeah, sort of. Some of the styling. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. But the weird thing about the mods and the rockers is they all like the same music, uh, which was which a, was what? It's kind of bluesy uh-huh. uh, uh, stuff, and then that gets heavier and heavier as the sixties go into the seventies. But the fact that both sides like the same music is a recipe for trouble because they try to go to the same venues. But the, the 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 sharpies always complained that they were discriminated against, whereas the the mods who were sort of more middle class and dressed up were, were allowed into the, to these sorts of places. But you know, in the seventies, there's, there's the, the, the skinheads and, mm. and various others, and I, I presume it keeps on going through. I mean, well, again, one of the really interesting things about this story is that the cities 
changing so dramatically demographically, it becomes harder and harder to stand out. And so you have to become more and more outrageous to, to do things and uh, to the point where no one cares. <laughs> Except, I, mean, I suppose, now we have moral panics about what young people are up to and it tends to be around ethnicity and, and what have you. But it's a bit hard to sort of have people stare at you in the street these days because you could be anyone from anywhere. That is a profound sense of, I mean, music is just one way of tracing that story, but it's a completely different city in terms of who lives here and what they do, how they dress, all those kinds of things. are largely unrecognisable, but sort of one of the functions of history and, and cultural narratives is to sort of fix on a place, a memory, way of sort of finding a sense of mu- music or Melbourne having an identity, partly through yeah. music. So yeah. it's an orienting yeah. exercise in a way. Um, and in terms of moral panics, I mean, I've studied Sydney Sydney histories and Melbourne histories, and there seems to be similarities there in that every 10 years you have a moral panic about youth itself, as Seamus said, the sheer numbers mm-hmm. and what they're up to at night. And so you have things like both cities shared every 10 years, you'd have newspaper reports saying the police are actually having kind of youth-specific divisions to take care of nighttime unrest mm-hmm. and behaviour. You've also got you've also got moral panics about the sound. So both cities newspapers had kind of 55, 56, 57 newspaper reports saying, "Don't worry, parents, rock and roll is just a fad. It will burn out. <laughs> um, it will it will go back to um, other kinds of genres. will will take precedence. Frank Sinatra will come back." Um, and what I found interesting was I found newspaper reports of Sinatra visiting Melbourne. In 56, and having real trouble selling out. Yeah, was it that people didn't like him or they didn't like going to see music or was – because I got that from the book as well, that promoters were a bit desperate about trying to – and there was a little bit of a Sydney-Melbourne rivalry maybe that that they couldn't sell seats here and – Yes, and that's something else we looked at in the history too, that the intense rivalry between radio stations, and it seems ridiculous to us now, but in the 60s and 70s, Radio stations, for example, sticking to playing Melbourne artists, Sydney stations playing Sydney artists, and and not really thinking about the wider benefits of cross-promotion because you didn't have a truly national touring circuit at that point. So it made sense for radio stations in one respect to really get close to the key artists in the city. Because that was part of the the touring circuit was local bands going around these suburban or inner city venues, so the radios are part of that. The same bands. It's so intensely local. When did that change? Australia starts to sort of go national in the 70s and then in the 80s it starts to go international. But yeah, but there were each sort of city, each state had its own very small closed economy in all sorts of ways until then. The other point about that is that the, the national borders were quite closed. They were open to people, but they were closed, which meant local artists could record songs that had been hits overseas, and they might be hits in another city, but the, the local artist could record it. Everyone thought it was theirs. It would get played on the radio, and you'd sell some records and attract people. So, you know, this is well before satellites and the internet and all this sort of stuff. So it was actually quite hard to get access to this stuff. But if you did, you could then milk it at its yeah. local level. Yeah, that kind of translation into into places. You don't. I don't think that's sort of recognisable now. That kind of idea. You just couldn't hear this song unless it came in through this kind of specific channel. Yeah. And that seemed to me. I mean, I recently read uh, Jimmy Little's biography, and that sort of. I mean, he's representative, I guess, of a whole circuit in Sydney at the time. But that was his way in was recording songs that were popular by country western artists elsewhere or pop artists. Do a recording of it here, promote it on Sydney radio, go on these sort of Sydney and regional circuits and there wasn't really a sense that like the original artist was the star. And if you think about an artist like Johnny Chester in the 60s in Melbourne, he was distinctly Victorian artist who didn't really get cross-promotion nationally and didn't become a true national um, star. He was always a Victorian star um, through the 80s into the 90s, but he didn't really kick off. But I think the other big thing is, as Seamus says, broadcasting goes national in the 80s. Uh, sorry, in the 70s. So by 1974, you've got Countdown. We can't underestimate the importance of Countdown. So Red Simon says, for example, 
once you're on Countdown, that's it. You, you can you can then do a national tour off the back of Countdown for the first time. So you had little little Paddy and Cole Joy and the others trying to do train national tours up and down this eastern seaboard. That works to an extent, but I think once Countdown breaks, and once you start having the national FM stations syndicated as well, that's an enormous boost to actually you then suddenly got a national profile. think that kind of relationship between place scale is negotiated and by who because we're going from what you're describing as an intensely local almost parochial might be the term but it's also incredibly vibrant might be surprising to some just how much there was of it but by the 80s 90s you have much more kind of international music culture um international artists touring international promoters and it's sort of much more coming down into Australian music. So there's a sort of sense that maybe you have to fight for or promote local artists more at the same time that places like Melbourne are very self-consciously branding themselves as simultaneously global cities but local music scenes. What are some of the key junctures there about going from being actually local to being kind of branded as local would be part of my reading? I think you're right. I mean, one of the... Things we need to remember, though, is that in theory, we're globalising or nationalising. In practice, there are gatekeepers everywhere and you have to go, they sort of funnel things. And so, yes, you can become well-known on a local circuit, but if you want to go national, you have to go to someone who can facilitate that or you have to go through something like Countdown or go through some of the, the emerging FM stations. So what that means is that while, as I say, in theory, the whole city, the whole country or the whole world is your marketplace, in practice, there are these stoppages along the way. It's the same argument that's made about, you know, the theory of the internet was great, but it's actually four companies basically control it. So it's, it's a similar sort of story. And what that means is that you can, you have to conform to certain requirements in order to be picked up or facilitated by some of these individuals or organisations. And that's part of how we more broadly understand the music scene or Melbourne music scene is, well, it's almost impossible to fully experience it. So you have to experience it through a gatekeeper, through kind of either memory or at the time it's kind of what's promoted, what's on radio, etc. And you have to remember, Melbourne had a bit of a chip on its shoulder in that all the major recording companies were headquartered in Sydney. Yeah, what's the story there, or is that sort of, is that just randomly the case, or is it? Yeah, like, so the major labels back then, like Polygram, EMI, were headquartered in Sydney and still are to this day. So mm-hmm. I think you've got a disjuncture there between the recording, kind of having a recording capital in Sydney, but then that may, lays open the case for Melbourne to say, you know, we're, we're kind of. Live music capital. Live, yeah, yeah. I know we've already spoken about it, but part of what seems to become part of Melbourne's live music identity, live music branding, is licensing changes and small venues. So this does seem to come off the back of the, how do you pronounce it, Neuenhausen? Neuenhausen? Yes, uh, Neuenhausen, I think. Neuenhausen, those kind yes. of changes. The shift from the beer barn pubs. We, I saw in here something, their licensing fees used to be like $100,000 a year. This is a big business into the 80s 90s that version of the licensing system in victoria suddenly you had more thousands of venues thousands of licensed venues some of which did music sort of opportunistically but for music it goes back much further than that i mean again you need to remember we're talking about sydney and melbourne sydney has those clubs yes. and the pokies yeah. which come in what 56 or something mm. the same 56 is an important year here They're not interested in young people and young music. They're interested in crooners who can entertain mums and dads who are pushing the buttons or pulling pulling the levers. And so what that means is the circuit up there is very different. Mm. And young people's music, rock and roll music, is much more corralled. Whereas here, there are these big suburban venues 
which in those days, I mean, the dining rooms are kind of redundant because people are not eating out in dining rooms anymore. They're going to local restaurants. But those big counter, you know, you probably remember counter meals. They were a big thing. We used to go to them. And those rooms are huge. And they're perfect for feeding in a few thousand punters on a Saturday night or a Friday night and you know, drinking themselves stupid while they're listening to music and then driving home, of course. <laughs> you don't really we have laugh, that in Sydney. <laughs> you don't really have that because yeah. you'd fill those places. Well, the pubs don't fill with poker machines. Yeah, yeah. But people's entertainment is to go to the local leagues club and play the pokies and listen to, as I say, a some crooner in a you know, you know, polyester suit. Yeah, this sort of whole shifting relationship between – and this is – I mean, maybe we should come to that – the relationship between kind of corporate – financial interests, entertainment, culture, where do kind of more community-based or politically motivated institutions fit into this? So community radio is one obvious example. Yeah, so we can't underestimate the importance of the Whitlam government in 75 legislating at first 12, 12 community radio licences, often on the back of educational institutions. So you've got four triple Z um, in Brisbane, triple R in Melbourne. So... They become so we've talked to countless musicians during this project where they say either I got my first interest in in rock rock and pop through listening to Triple R, for example, and then I got, then I put my first band together and I got my first airplay on Triple R or PBS um, or Sin or whatever. So yes, I think that's a that that is a national treasure which Melbourne has had much earlier, much stronger than other capital cities. And I think there's, that's no coincidence that that has fed into the strength of the live music circuit. Um, and it's also, I think, produced a kind of literacy around our local music that other states have lacked as well. So other states have caught up. So you've got FBI, for example, in Sydney. Australia now has something like 450 stations as a community radio network. So yes, other states have caught up and other cities have caught up, but Melbourne certainly got to jump on the others in terms of how music was discussed the kind of expertise you get on, on, on a local station where someone can tell you who played saxophone on the B-side of, of the hit they're playing, that kind of literacy is just, is just gold in terms of fostering a, a, fostering a sense of community amongst not just the venues but the wider population. And an interest. I mean, I don't want to cheapen the other kind of drivers here, but the sort of fan, enthusiast, community radio person seems to be more interested in music and the actual content than maybe the, well, certainly some of the venue operators that are still creating space for music, but they're basically doing it. They A pokey machine is just as good, kind of. So, yeah. yeah. The other thing to remember is that uh, Sydney got double J. Yeah. What was that 74, 75, mm. which was a plus, mm. but it was also a hindrance because it's part of the ABC. Mm-hmm. And so... and. and it didn't go national till the 1989, I think it was. But so you had this sort of you know, growing group of community radio stations in Melbourne, which had taken that. And Triple J, even today, still doesn't have the impact here that it does in Sydney because it's taken by these smaller local community stations. Yeah, so a local content radio has more direct connection to a music mm. city. Are there other kind of lessons? I mean, we started a discussion from this, the government interest in music city, music city, industry, creative city, those kinds of things, and you guys wanting to look back at the history of Melbourne from the point of view that it's not as simple as just saying it or adding water. What are the kind of the, what are the ingredients or the lessons for a music city? Radio maybe is one of them. What else? Is it planning laws? Is it venues? Is it all this other demographic Youth, can you have a music city without a lot of young people? <laughs> I'm a bit of a heretic on this one because I think <laughs> mostly what government should do is just get out of the way. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I said yep too. So. <laughs> stop interfering <laughs> and uh, and planning should probably get out of the way as well. And I, you know, I have this discussion with people who are involved in occupational health and safety and there are obviously you know, basic certain thing. things. But if something's working, leave it. And it's... There's nothing worse than when uh, governments or government organisations get involved and they want to control everything because that kills it. Is that happening in Melbourne now? I don't know enough to 
to, to say so. You live in the past. No, it's not that I live in the past. It's just that I, yeah, well, I, it's probably best if I stay home rather than go out and embarrass myself. But, but more, um, I was in giving a talk in Sydney just before the pandemic about changes in cities. And the minister and his um, uh, assistant, whatever they, they call Lucky. them, so, yeah, wanted to, he, he was hoping to win uh, election and they didn't wanted to talk to me about what they should do and this other. And you know, when I said nothing, they were pretty annoyed because they wanted an agenda and they wanted a, a press statement and that, that sort of stuff. But the other big one is you've got to control the price of accommodation. Mm. Yeah, so housing is... It's hugely yeah. important. Land and accommodation, yeah. 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 Some of the, I mean, the Prince of Wales came up in the 90s section of your sort of pubs and I, I sort of just wanted to check, because oh, I remembered that, the, all the venues listed in the 90s one was like, oh, I remember that one, I remember that one, because that was when I would have moved to Melbourne. But the Prince of Wales was recently sold, you know, as a freehold title, $50 million. Yeah. This is serious money. This is hard to kind of reconcile with opportunities to just to exist in the city at all. Yeah. Alone to Gentrification kind of, yeah. has had a huge impact on this. But my sense is that, as we talked about with adapt, adaptation earlier on, People in the music industry and have just simply moved out another step. Mm. Um, whether you can keep on doing that, I, I, I don't know. But uh, certainly, if you were, you know, as you say, if you're looking for live music now, you don't hang around that sort of inner belt. You move out to yeah, places like Preston spaces. and beyond. What's your of, view, though, Shane, on what 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 are the kind of ingredients or things that can be done to keep or create a music city? I would be slightly more optimistic than Seamus. Um, <laughs> In the sense that I think it's a fine balancing act. Yes. So what's a recurring theme in our book is that time and time again, we find that a thriving discotheque scene, a thriving Italian ballroom, rock and pop scene, um, a thriving kind of um, little heavy metal scene, whatever it is, that pops up through do-it-yourself enthusiasm from the fans, from the bands who talk to each other constantly, find their own communities find their own micro genres and the venues build from there. So that comes up time and time again where, as Seamus says, if governments, it helps the government actually don't find them until 10 years after they've kind of reached their peak <laughs> and then they start worrying about them. <laughs> so that's, but I would say there is a role for government. If you look at things like the Asian of Change legislation, mm -hmm. which came in, so Victoria was the first well, city, Melbourne was the first city to kind of benefit from that age of change, which has now been copied in the planning laws of England, Wales, Scotland. Different states across the US have copied it. Um, New well, Zealand's the looking at it. might not know it. It's a planning principle of um, if the – I mean, it cuts both ways. If the music venue is already there and you change, the onus is on the new development to soundproof, usually what that means. Yep. Um, it can the sort of to me one of the tricky things is it goes the other way. If the house if the housing's already there, the onus is on the venue to be soundproofed, which can can be a kind of barrier. But yes, yeah. it's and it's very complex in its implementation. Mm -hmm. And but a clear example um, to me is the Howler case where mm -hmm. um, it was proposed something like forty six apartments were going to be built next door to the Howler in Brunswick with a shared wall. Um, and that, that got kind of stomped on the head eventually by both Moreland Council and the and the government through VCAT saying, we, we invoke agent of change to protect that. I've got problems with that in that sense that the venue owner, um, with the assistance of Music Victoria, had to expend an awful lot of money, time and resources to get to that point where the council finally said, we invoke agent of change. So there's still issues with that legislation in terms of how it's processed, how it's implemented. But that's one example where the government has realised that some of these resources should be saved. So venues aren't just bricks and mortar, that they have a heritage um, component to them, not just not just in terms of the physical nature of the building or the facade or whatever, but they've got a heritage component in terms of memories in those venues of both fans and, and, and performers. Um, so I think there's still a role for government in that sense. Um, and I think if you think of places like the Esplanade in St Kilda, that's been highly gentrified. It's now got something like eight or ten restaurants. 
it's it's seriously gone over to the side of fine dining, consumption of drinking. Um, they still have a component of music, but it's nothing like it was in the 70s and 80s. That, to me, seems to be a model for how those venues survive, which leads me to thinking about the role of government in how the less shiny venues and those shiny places and communities survive mm. in increasingly gentrified city. That's the, I think that's the number one priority for a government or challenge for a government across any city is how do you keep the small hole-in-the-wall venues going? So, it's, um, you know, Austin, Texas is having the same problem. London's having the same problem. Um, Auckland's having the same problem. Wellington's having the same problem. Um I think as the city gentrifies, governments are coming up with less firepower and any innovation, there's less innovation around or willingness to keep those venues going because that's where your new micro genres come from. That's where your new your innovation comes from. And the only other thing I would say is that in my experience, most music city policies or schemes seem to be pretty much live music policies. So Berlin, for example is a world leader in thinking about how do we encourage music publishing? How do we encourage music songwriting? How do we encourage music IT? Mm. So they're, they're interested in, in, in the production of new music companies as much as, as having new new local bands. So I think too often music cities, and Melbourne fits this case as well, they're too preoccupied with live music policy to the detriment of other policy. Yeah, and that might, might actually in that sort of – strange way actually be part of our kind of focus on the consumption and the sort of visitor thing is that's the thing a tourist I we go down this laneway and you'll have a great experience you don't market kind of songwriting to a to a visitor so that might be part of the issue and I keep thinking all of this rings true in terms of yeah the smaller venues how do you survive commercially and even just sort of some of the legislative issues the noise complaints and stuff but how do you start like where's in all all your book and I'm thinking of Sarah's thesis as well, Sarah Taylor. Not many venues sort of, even without something actively undermining them, not many of them kind of live more than like 20 years, right? I'm just put a random number on it. New ones come up. So how do you make the conditions right to for new things to emerge as well? Or is it the same basic issue around cost and um, um, okay. this slightly different question? I think of these things as a historian always, huh? And one of the things historians always say, it's going to change. Things change. That's what happens. And as you know, I'm involved with architects and architects and stuff as well. And what I always say to architects and planners is build in adaptability. And it seems to me that these venues need to be able to change, both physically and in what they can do in all sorts of other ways. And that's what should be encouraged. Don't build something that's, you know, state-of-the-art today because it's going to be not state-of-the-art tomorrow. But if you have a place that's adaptable and reusable and maybe even multiple times in a day can be adaptable, that's how you keep these things going. Whereas you know, rigidly sticking to a plan, I think, is always going to go pear-shaped. Do you have any comments on, on what's happened with the tote as a long-running venue but one that's sort of, you know... People in Sydney might not be aware, but it's had various kind of mishaps, um, nearly closing down, um, being sold on the open market, probably going to be redeveloped. And the last update is that it's been purchased by a sort of loosely like almost a trust. Is that a fair summary of it? It's a sort of partly commercial, partly cooperative ownership model. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It seems, as you said, it seems to be almost like a public trust model where two people have said, if you trust us to take over guardianship of the venue... They crowdfunded something like $3 million. Um, John Perring and, and the other owners of the Toad said, well, the asking price is around $6 mil. Um, that seems, seems to have been sorted, that they've found the funding for the full $6 million somehow. Um, and I think it's interesting that the one of the fundraisers said that he will he will put a tattoo of every single name, <laughs> of every donor onto his body, which is an interesting way of fundraising. Um <laughs> It's like when you go to like a swimming pool or whatever, they have little names of people that donated. Yeah. Like this is an extreme yeah. version of that. Mm. And the fun, sorry, and the, the totes almost collapsed a couple of times over the last couple of decades. So I'm pleased to see it actually, if it keeps going as a venue, it's a very, again, it comes back to that issue of 
it's grungy, you know, it's not upscale, it's not upmarket, but you need, it's a vital source for up, up and coming bands. Mm. And the booking, the booking policy of the venue has been critical to Melbourne over the last two decades. Which is that they're pretty open, right? They do it every night. Well, not every night, close to every night, multiple gigs. And that sort of openness is how you get a start if you, if you're not already established. So yeah, having that does seem to be important. I know there are other venues in that area, but that's a sort of long-running one. And I wonder, is this kind of the future or our version of the future? And maybe we'll close on that as historian or as a an, as a cultural um, policy expert. What are sort of some of the changes you see emerging? And do you think that different ownership models, different kind of music genres are, are going to become more common or is it are we sort of too locked in? Shane, the good news story is. <laughs> well, I think, you know, we talked a lot about gentrification. I think Australia hasn't gone down this path except for in Fortitude Valley, Brisbane. But I think mm. the time has come for cities like Melbourne <clears throat> to look at the precinct idea. Mm-hmm. So I think the precinct idea will become a powerful weapon for the music industry in preserving key venues, in warding off residents who... We all know Melbourne has a long-term plan to have more apartment living in the CBD. How do you reconcile that with music venues? I think one way is actually having a precinct idea and saying, and we just talked about the Tote Hotel, that now sits cheek by jowl with a what, do you, what you would call a creative precinct. Yeah, that's right. The, the, um, the yards. The Collingwood, Collingwood Yards. yards. Yeah. So, you've, so you've got um, Aparam Cost there, you've got a whole range of mu- – you've got Music Victoria there. PBS so, is there too, isn't it? Sorry? PBS is there. Yeah, that's too. right, one of the radio stations. So I think I think that's one way of actually warding off or protecting the live music sector as cities going to keep gentrifying. I think that, that – I'm not sure if that's a, a good news story, but it, I think it's one – It's certainly a viable option, I think. It, it does give the sense that there's something slightly more stable about it, which can be good and bad, I suppose, but um, that precinct model – seems to have more of a future than a pub holding on against what seem to be quite hostile forces, even despite a kind of broad policy supporting music, the actual experience of a lot of venue operators is much more marginal. And can I say, can I, I'll just add, a, okay, I'll finish on a good news story. Yep. So one of the things we said in the book was that the Morrison government and the Abbott government went AWOL on national cultural policy for a good over a good decade. So we said that in the book, in its place, um, Sydney and Melbourne stepped up in particular and places like Adelaide also and come up with their own cultural plans around what their city should look like in terms of music, theatre, you know, all popular culture and high culture, the whole box and dice. So what we've seen in the last six months is with the election of the Albanese federal government, we've got an arts minister who understands culture. Yeah, helps he plays guitar in his spare time, likes knocking out Akadaka tunes and Minot Oil on his guitar. That helps. But he clearly understands um, popular culture as a workplace. He clearly understands the music industries as a set of industries who should make money but also are in, in the business of identity creation. He also understands the national importance of a cultural plan. So I think, I think there should be interesting things to come out of Tony Burke's tenure as Arts Minister in the next next three or four years. Seamus, to you, what do you see as sort of the future models? Um, I actually just want to agree with it. I think the precincts one's really important. I think the Collingwood example is a really good example. Uh, uh, and that's where governments can intervene. So government stepped in and bought that area mm. up and did that. But for me, the really the Housing. most important <laughs> part of, of the most interesting story of Melbourne over the last 50 or 70 years is how multicultural it's become. Yeah. And it's one of the great multicultural cities of the world. And it seems to me that one of the missing ingredients in live music is that it's not reflected. That multiculturalism is not really reflected in it. And again, of all the other great music cities of the world, they've been the places that have blended mm. different musical cultures and different musical genres. And I don't see a lot of evidence of that yeah. yet. Yeah. But I think we will. I think as more and more communities begin to assert themselves and and more and more people become more open to those ideas, I think that'll be that'll be something that will be recognised as a very, very Melbourne thing. Yeah, yeah, and sort of coming out of out of the changing the same sort of demographic economic 
upheavals that caused the music history you talk about, the same things are happening now and you can see... It's a process of speeding up. The migration is so large and it has been over the last generation Mm. and it's made for for me such a dynamic city. I can see that starting to reflect in cultures and especially music cultures. Yeah, and young people and the, the way they, they yeah. make music and where they make it. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, a, an exciting version of the future, I think. But I did also think when you, you said I wanted to have one story, I was kind of like this is, a to me, one of the kind of um, constraints or bigger framing issues around Music City and the kind of interrelationship between culture, music, politics and also the financial world is that so much of when we're talking about a city in music, we're talking about space, and that means really opportunity to be in the place. And so much we have a, our housing system is incredibly hostile; it's becoming ever more unequal, and the cost cost of living in a city like Melbourne is high enough as it is. Let alone if you were sort of interested in spending your time on less lucrative professions like being a musician. So, income and and housing kind of constrain what's possible and there does seem to be a theme historically that a lot of the best music comes out of migration and also kind of I guess a a slightly lower cost of living so how to tackle that is a kind of a bigger bigger it is but again one of the big issues that's been talked around the world at the moment is office space is becoming redundant because of work from home and what have you adapting some of those spaces, I think, to use it to both for residential but also for culture, I think might become an important part of the urban story over the next generation or so. Yeah, it could be the next redundant spaces, yeah. The, yeah, the, the commercial spaces. Final question or, or thoughts. We didn't talk that much about recording. It did come up, but one of the themes of, of the Pirate Radio is the sort of relationship between technology recorded music and places do you think that cities music cities matter or their meaning changes now that there's so much of an emphasis on digital and and kind of uh, global content well it's fascinating talking to recording engineers and artists who recorded in the 70s and 80s um well sorry but going back before that so if you look at the 50s and 60s there was a constant theme from those we interviewed that well, Australian records sounded pretty shit. <laughs> yeah, they actually they sounded thin. So we, we had words like thin thrown at us by recording engineers and artists in the 50s and 60s saying, we just didn't sound like the records that we were buying overseas. Mm. So it took, it took a decade for the recording technology to catch up where we imported, you know, German microphones, UK recording mixing decks, and we got our first bunch of studios, you know, in, into the 60s. In early 70s. But what struck me interviewing those people from those decades was how closely a sound was identified with a particular recording studio. Mm. That you went to a particular recording studio if you're a particular genre. So LRB, Little River Band had their had um, their own sound identified with, with that particular studio, which that name I now can't remember. I and, can't remember either. <laughs> you know, and Tony Cohen's work with his, with his studio. So... That, that doesn't exist anymore, that, that sense of you pay an enormous amount of money to record a particular album with a particular producer looking at going for a particular sound. Mm. Um, that seems quite unique for the time. Yeah, now it's a lot of people, maybe not to the same quality, but kind of anyone can record music, for better and worse, I think. So that kind of lessened role of the engineer or emphasis is liberating, but also I find it's a little bit seems like it can be a bit disorientating because there's so much. And then you come back to who's the gatekeeper now. The gatekeeper is whoever those four companies are on the internet sometimes, which to me is partly why local performance still matters because that's sort of a different way of discovering music rather than just sort of searching for the many millions of songs or billions on the internet. But Seamus, what do you think? Technology, change, space? One of the really odd paradoxes about the digital world Mm. is that people want to come together more. So we're all isolated in our headphones and our screens, but around the world there's been this mass movement towards gathering. It's been going on for a generation now. You know, we're seeing it 
in Melbourne at the moment with the football finals, but we saw it during the World Cup where people mm. were gathering in square, etc. So the technology's there for anyone to put their music out in the world, but there's still something about coming together with like-minded people to do it live. And I don't think that's going away. Yeah, I'd like to think not. Pandemic or not. it's In fact, it's come back in a big way post-pandemic. So, um, yeah, I think... Record it. I mean, you can record to a far, far higher quality than Shane's been talking about on your phone now. Mm. But seeing it perform live, it's, there's still something about it. Hopefully, it continues to be something about it. Um, I think I'll wrap up on that. So, thank you to Shane Homan, Seamus O'Hanlon, and the other two authors of Melbourne Music City, Catherine Strong and uh, John Tebbit. John Tebbit. You can buy a hard copy book of this. If you, you can buy the full paperback copy now possibly get a digital recording of it people yeah. you know our library doesn't that's why i've got it printed out they don't have the hard copy don't buy a hard copy people you would need a second mortgage uh, but, but the um, <laughs> you won't be able to the go paperback, see music copies, uh, paperback version's not it's quite affordable isn't it yeah i can't remember how much it is yeah. and it's part of the I whole it's only 30 bucks 40 bucks there's a whole wonderful world i think the intersection between books and memoir writing and music like it's the, when I go to a bookshop and I still do, that's the ones I look for. It's people's memories of or accounts of sound, even though it's a little bit like that like saying, you know, it's like dancing about architecture or whatever. It seems to be a mismatch to write about something audio. I find it's really, uh, it gives you a different perspective on it. So, And, you know, you can just recognise places and put yourself in a context. Thanks again, Shane and, and Shane. Thank you for indulging us. Thank you. Lights go on, the lights go off. The smokers come by parking spots. Tall silver tables with pool cues in the corner. Bistro meals and sports televised. on strangers shoulders don't leave your kids in shoulder when you need it